the New Money Review podcast, The Future of Money in 30 Minutes. I'm Paul Amory, the editor of New Money Review. For this episode of the podcast, I'm delighted to welcome an old friend and former colleague, Paul Craven. After working for nearly 30 years as an asset manager, Paul is now a consultant, public speaker and coach. He works with a range of clients, from investors to doctors to lawyers and entrepreneurs. His specialist topic is behavioural economics. Paul describes it as how real people make real decisions in the real world. His insights in this area don't just come from finance. Paul is also a trained magician. As you'll hear him talk about on the podcast, we all make mental shortcuts and, sometimes, our minds play tricks on us as a result. Those shortcuts are exploited by magicians in their performances, but they can also cause us to make big mistakes when investing. The tendency for our minds to jump to conclusions can also hamper us in our general lives. So, to help ourselves, we need to be aware as much of our own potential weaknesses as of our own strengths. To understand more about this fascinating topic, listen in for the next half hour. I hope you'll enjoy the discussion as much as I did. Paul, welcome to the New Money Review podcast. Could you please start by telling listeners a bit about yourself and your area of work? Hello, Paul. Yes, Paul Craven, and uh, I like to fly the flag for behavioural science. Uh, What does that mean? It means my definition is behavioural science is how real people make real decisions in the real world, and particularly about money. And my background is in the world of investment. I have spent 27 years working for three firms. I worked for Schroeder's in the old days, which is where I first worked with uh, Paul Amory. Uh, I then, as a portfolio manager, and then as on the sales side, I then moved to the well-known fixed income house PIMCO for four years, 2003 to 2007. And then from 2007 for seven years, I was at Goldman Sachs Asset Management. And I've always worked on the long-term institutional uh, investment of money. In other words, not trading, not interested in buying and selling for the short term. The idea being to how can we best invest as a company for a institutional pension fund's long-term future? So I'm not a trader. Um, and indeed, as my own money goes, I, I tend to lock it away and screw it away for the long term, believing that uh, time and patience are two friends if you have the time uh, to uh, last it out. Great. Well, we'll come on to uh, time and uh, its effect on how we do things. In a minute. That, that's a very interesting topic. But you haven't mentioned that you, you also uh, are a magician and you you know your work in behavioral science has also overlaps with you know, a practical role as a, as a magician. And um, I, I, I mean, I, I'd like to ask you a very broad question to start, which is the, you know, what is the link between money and magic? I just, a, you know, brief aside, I, I, as I've got older, I, I've found the workings of money and markets you know, ever more mysterious. And uh, I just wondered what your, as, a, as someone who specializes in this area, what, you, you know, what your thoughts are on that, uh, that link between money and magic. That's a very good question, Paul. And let me say something, first of all, something about magic and behavioral science, because I do get asked this a lot about, you know, you spend a lot of time, Paul, performing and practicing and writing and reading about magic. And you also spend a lot of time performing behavioral science on stage as a public speaker, which is what I do now. Since I left uh, those three firms, I've, I've, I said flying the flag. I spend a lot of time coaching people on behavioral science, how you can use it in two areas. One is in investment and two is particularly in terms of sales, persuasion and influence. And so my definition of behavioral science, how real people make real decisions in the real world, part of that is how does the mind work? 
How does your mind work in terms of persuading someone to do something? And how does the mind of your clients work? And what behavioural science and indeed magic have taught me both, and I think they join around the back of a circle, is that the mind works pretty well sometimes and doesn't work at other occasions. And of course, a magician has an honest contract with an audience. I will show you how your mind doesn't work. I will fool you and hopefully you'll enjoy it. It's an honest contract. It's not being a con man. Um, likewise, behavioral science says, I will try and show you how to make better decisions because sometimes your mind doesn't work very well. And your unconscious mind, for example, can be very powerful. So they definitely link up. Paul, can I, let me stop you there for a second. So could you give the uh, listeners some uh, examples of, you know, when, or a couple of examples, you know, when does the mind work really well and, and how might it go wrong or how might it mislead us? Okay, well, I mean, the unconscious mind is very powerful. So the best metaphor I've ever found in all the years of studying behavioral science is this idea of the elephant and the rider. And it's only a metaphor. It's not designed to represent physical parts of the brain. But the idea being is that your conscious mind, which is the mind you think you use, the model you think you use a lot of time, is like the rider on an elephant. And you can sit proud. You can have a strategy, a vision, a uh, you can think about things. You can use your, you know, you use your, 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 um, your, the cortex of your brain to come up with great logical, analytical, data-driven, and evidence-based thinking. And that's the sort of way we like to think about issues. That's how we kind of we flatter ourselves that that's how we make decisions, for example. But the Jonathan Haidt metaphor says, no, no, you're sitting on an elephant, and whilst the rider is your conscious mind, the elephant represents your unconscious mind. And it's very big and powerful and silent. Sometimes you don't know it's there. But trust me, if, if you as the rider want to go left and the elephant is feeling thirsty and sees a water hole on the right, guess which way you're going to go. Your unconscious mind is very powerful. And the reason I say that, Paul, in the context of your question is that we our unconscious mind actually makes us do lots of things. And, and what happens is the conscious mind then tries to give reasons why we're doing it. Um, as someone put it once, one is like the press office, one's like the Oval Office in the White House. So, for example, I, 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 anybody who has a habit, an addiction, that could be smoking, could be anything, or bites their fingernails. Um, that's not your conscious mind saying this is a sensible, rational thing to do. It is an unconscious habit. The elephant is very powerful. And, you know, it's pretty hard to shake addictions or habits. Why? Because the elephant is bigger and stronger than you and dieting anything so we often do things because of our unconscious mind now let's just get into the world of investment or something we have a natural aversion to loss aversion it may you know we we, we tend to hate losses twice as much as we like gains of the same amount um this is makes great evolutionary sense that elephant makes sense why well if you're walking along in the ancestral environment the savannah and you hear a rustle in the bush uh, you can have two things. If you want to think logically, you can think it's just the wind blowing. No problem. I'll just walk on past it. Or you could go, shit, it might be something really dangerous. It might be something about to jump out and eat me. And I better take evasive action or run away or get my spear out. Now, if you think about it, it doesn't matter <laughs> what is behind the bush. If you take the second option, you're more likely to survive. Your DNA will continue. If you take, however, the logical thing that probability says it's probably just the wind blowing and you're wrong, that's the end of your DNA. So there's a, all the biases we have, all the mental shortcuts we have, and those are kind of when I talk about mistakes, it's the mental shortcuts we make. 
<coughs> that may be appropriate in some environments but aren't in others. Take the herd instinct, for example. It makes great sense when you see herds of wildebeest crossing the Zambezi together or flocks of starlings or pigeons or whatever. Evolution survival makes great sense. But take that. When, when, you, when you translate that into money, you end up with uh, extraordinary popular delusions and the madness of crowds. Absolutely right. Why? Because it's an artificial environment. Because you're not, you're, the, these instincts that we have, we, and I think, what, think what the group, inst- the herd instinct is, or the bandwagon that is, it actually says, I'm watching what someone else is doing. Could be another animal. Um, that animal seems to be thriving. I better join it. And suddenly you get hordes and hordes of the same animal doing the same thing, hence murmurations of starlings, etc. Take that to an unusual modern artificial environment, a bunch of humans in a marketplace, a stock market. I can see my neighbour making money. I don't really know what they're doing or why they're doing it, but I better join them. Tulip mania, the South Sea bubble, anything. Cryptocurrencies. And it's, <clears throat> so my, my premise, pull for a lot of the behavioural finance I'm interested in is that actually you can't really call them irrational biases. And there's a big debate in behavioural science about is a bias irrational? <clears throat> I would say no, it's probably not. A bias is there or a heuristic, a mental shortcut is there for a good reason. It's just not necessarily appropriate for the artificial environment in which we now find ourselves. Yeah. So so <clears throat> I, I'm aware I didn't answer your first question, by the way, which is the link between money and magic, which has got me thinking. And I'm, I've, I've now remembered well, what let the... Me, let, let me, I just, sorry to interrupt you, Paul. I just want to, so I, I'm, I'm going to <coughs> rephrase the que- same question in a slightly uh, different way. So... Um, you, you mentioned um, a few minutes ago that the magician has an honest contract with the audience. So the audience knows that the magician is performing tricks. They want to be impressed. They want to you know, have their perceptions, I guess, tested or even fooled. Um, but when you translate that to the world of money, it's a little bit different, isn't it? Because there's a, there's a, you often have um, people tricking one another um, in what is not an honest contract. But at the same time, it's not just a question of, I mean, this is my, this is, you know, I interviewed Dan Davis on this subject on fraud a few months ago, and he said that there's a very interesting uh, aspect of fraud, which is that when somebody is uh, tricking somebody else, the victim actually goes along with the fraud for quite a long time because there's a period of time when the the criminal or the fraudster has kind of knows that he's tricked the the victim, but the victim also believes that he has made a gain uh, and doesn't really understand until later on that there wasn't a gain in the first place it's just he's just been fooled you know so I, that's could you bring your sort of magic and money question or the, your your thoughts on that topic magic versus money into that investment context i can i can but i i will just first of all i'll, I'll address the exact issue you talked about but before i do I, i'll just reiterate that if you go and see a magician perform you know there's an honest contract there i think what you're referring to is is the natural and and dan's talk was was very good indeed about fraud and clearly uh, there has been examples of disgusting fraud in in the world in which we've lived in for many years in terms of financial markets the ponzi schemes for example classic example of fraud and i think that you can think about other issues things like the the bearings uh, which is you know where i think the start of our careers was was probably the major um scandal if you like in terms of the financial markets when Essentially, in that case, you know, senior management was letting a junior employee make what looked to be lots of money on the trading book. I think it was an oil, as I recall. 
uh, and never really questioned the process because as long as the numbers were looking good, senior management back at the, in the UK was saying, thank you very much indeed, we'll keep collecting this real money. So I think there's a kind of denial aspect. And sometimes if some of these other sorts of, sometimes these sorts of frauds, um, people do go along with them because essentially it's, it's, it's almost like, I don't want to consider this might not be working. I mean, there's... And it's almost, it's kind of rational that they want to, they're thinking about their own bonus, their own potential yeah. out, you know, gain. Um, yeah. They don't want to question the... What it shows, though, I think to me, more than anything else in the whole of, of all investment, and I apply this to anybody, is that don't just look at the outcome. You must look at the process that determines the outcome. The outcome is the the sort of the, the ostensible rewards. It's have you, you know, won the FA yeah. Cup in football terms, whatever. But actually, to win the FA Cup, you have to be have a great squad of players, great training, great technique, great skills, and you have to work really hard and train. It doesn't just happen. I think the problem is we're seduced by the results. And obviously the media will always focus on the result, particularly if it's a particularly good or a particularly bad one, without thinking of the hours and hours and hours of of work that have gone into the whole thing um, just to get to that position. And, and, you know, it doesn't matter. Think of any expert you think of. Uh, they have worked very hard to get to that level of expertise. But by the time they they reach the press or the media or whatever, it's all Muhammad Ali had a wonderful phrase, which is actually pinned up in my gym. Um, he said, the fight is won or lost far away from the witnesses, behind the lines, in the gym and out there on the road, long before I dance under those lights. And I think, you know, that's a boxing yeah. record, but I think that applies to anybody who's claims to be a good investor or, or whatever, maybe yeah. that skills to be learned. So can I, can I, let me stop you there, Paul. So, the, the, um, so let's go back to the herd instinct. And you talked about, you know, this is being a uh, part of nature. You know, starlings uh, are in flocks, wildebeest are in herds, and humans tend to follow what their, you know, immediate neighbors are doing. So given that this can lead us astray with money and with investments, what can we do to kind of uh, counter our natural biases or instincts? There are lots of things you can do that involve self-discipline techniques. Now, the, the first thing I would do is, is that don't be seduced by the idea that because your neighbour is making lots of money and it looks easy, it's easy. I mean, he or she may be lucky or smart. There may be lots of reasons they're doing it. Don't just assume you can jump on the same bandwagon. And, you know, I think you and I have had experience of some of the booms and busts in our in our long careers where we we have literally been told by taxi drivers, you know, what stocks he or she are buying because it's obviously going to keep on going up. And that's a, a typical red light. True story. Uh, an old colleague of ours, I won't name him, but you know him well. Um, he went to see his daughter in Edinburgh uh, about uh, seven or eight weeks ago. And he came to pay his bill at the end of a, a, a dinner in a restaurant. And he wanted to tip the waiter who'd given him some good service. And the waiter actually said to him, I don't need a tip. Thank you, sir. And our mutual friend said, why is that? He said, I'm invested in Bitcoin. I don't need any more money. <laughs> now, look, at this, look at the share price chart and look when it's uh, <laughs> near or less perfect. And, and, no, That's I, a kind of an ev evolution of the shoeshine boy anecdote for, of the 1920s. It's, uh, this, it's like even bigger than the 20s. You know, they, they don't even need the, the, the salary anymore. Yeah. Correct. And, and, or the and, tip. And, and and again, that's that's an anecdote, and we know that anecdotes aren't necessarily the same as data, but you do get to hear those sorts of stories a lot. Now, 
The yeah. first thing I would say is watch out if you start hearing those stories. I'm hearing them about, you know, I've heard them all my life about certain tech companies in the late 90s, uh, certain fund managers, because, of course, this can attach itself to a fund manager as well, an individual who yeah. everything he or she touches turns to gold. Now, there have been some number of high-profile examples recently where we've seen that that King Midas um, touch has failed dismally, miserably and dismally. Uh, and uh, watch out if everyone's jumping on on board. I mean, there's a so don't so we shouldn't follow the crowd, and we should be self disciplined. In other words, we should prepare ourselves and and not 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 assume the outcome, but just focus more on the process. And the process would be, would be what, like monitoring for potential losses or cutting losses. What what should we do to protect ourselves? Well, in a, diversify. In a, I guess the old you know the old sto- old rules of diversification is, is is still remains wonderful advice. I know that people say, "Oh, you never get rich by having a diversified portfolio," but the point is, you'll never you shouldn't. <laughs> If you have time and patience on your side, you shouldn't ever wipe yourself out on one trade if you have a diversified yeah. portfolio. And I think too many people who are attracted by the, say, the recent bubble in in in, in uh, you know some of the the um, cryptocurrencies, fine, they may be right. I don't really understand them. I'll be completely honest with you. I've, I've never seen price action like it in the markets. Uh, doesn't mean it's not justified. Means I don't understand it. I won't invest in things I don't understand. I won't just take someone's word for it. It's a good thing here. Put some money into this. Um, so I guess the key message is my advice would be do your own research. That to me is is yeah. lesson one. Lesson two is be aware that you have biases. Yeah. So And the most common investment bias I've found, I think is a thing called confirmation bias. The idea being that I like this idea, for example, I might like a stock or a share or a bond or whatever it be. And I then end up searching the media or information channels to find evidence that supports me, that confirms my view, confirmation bias, and I'll reject stuff that doesn't fit in with that view. Yeah. And um, uh, I, I always quote this, but Simon and Garfunkel in the, the, the song The Boxer, still a man hears what he wants to hear and disregards the rest. That's pure Especially passion. if he's on Twitter, because yeah. if you're on Twitter and following people that have the same views as you, you're just reinforcing your... Your own opinion. It's total echo chamber. It's total amount of echo chamber. And um, yeah. and and by the way, this applies not just to investment; it applies to politics. You know, any almost anything that you people tend to end up talking to people they they agree with or like. So guess what? The, the hardest thing to say when you have an idea is where could I be wrong? And now Darwin was very good at this. Darwin, one of my intellectual heroes, was very good at saying where could I be wrong? And one of the reasons why he didn't publish his theory of evolution for so long. There were religious reasons and others as well. But one of the reasons he writes about his diaries is that he kept trying to disconfirm his evidence. I, where could I be wrong? And eventually he couldn't do it. And then Wallace was publishing something similar and he realized I've got to publish my, my information, my, yeah. my, my book out there. And I think we would do well occasionally, whatever we're doing, money eyes or, or not, is to say, where could I be wrong? Now, the problem with this, though, Paul, is that if you have a good idea, say, in the office, Say you have a brilliant idea. Um, it's very hard to go up to your boss and say, I have a brilliant idea. Let me tell you where I could be wrong. It sounds as if you lack confidence. It sounds as if you haven't thought it through. But actually, yeah. you, uh, you have thought it through. Yeah. And, um, but it's, it's- and, the re- and the really top investors, you know, some of the people we've known, um, uh, you know, were, they, were, they were good at doing that. They were always questioning things. They were not sitting, patting themselves on the back. They were, you know, maybe they then sold out of things too early, but they, they did. They did always question what they were doing. 
They did. And and you're absolutely right. And I remember a handful of them. And, and there have been some very skillful investors I've been lucky enough to work alongside uh, over the last 30 years. They, they they tend to all be humble, actually. The good yeah. ones, the ones that I've are. The ones that are arrogant, guess what, tend to fall by the wayside. Um, yeah. They also don't fall in love with stocks. Now, I think one of the things that we do, um, again, as human beings, natural biases, we tend to hold on to stocks for too long, a lot of it. Yeah. Because we we still think we're right, we, and again, something that we need to think about is where could I be wrong in in my? Could I be over optimistic on this now? I've got it right so far. The stock's gone up. There must be a point at which all the good news has been squeezed out the price. Now it doesn't always happen that way. Sometimes stocks go from bottom left to top right over the long yeah. term. Fine, that that's different. That's a, that's about patience and time. But for sort of the time frame we're talking about. Um, One's got to be aware that occasionally um, all the good news is in the price. But again, a lot of human biases stop investors from selling if they've had a good run up in it. Yeah. So let's 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 come back to the topic of fast and slow and and the, the Kahneman's book on thinking fast and slow and how we're programmed to to do some things quickly, but in the other in you know in in in, in other areas, slow thinking or low time preference gets us where we want to go. You know how 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 important is that as a in behavioral science and the, the way we, in particular, the context of money and investments? Well, the, the thinking fast and slow concept generally is, is outstanding. Again, I mean, I mentioned the Jonathan Haidt thing, the elephant, the rider. It's the same principle, system one, system two. Uh, yeah. System one, um, fast, instinctive, emotive, reactive. System two, more measured, more logical, more evidence-based, more analytical. And we should be trying to use as much system two as possible but mindful of what I said, that sometimes our system one or our elephant has good instincts. I mean, sometimes instincts do work. And and if you talk to people who are perhaps in industries more creative than ours, who thrive on creativity, they would probably not unfairly turn to their um, system one side to look for inspiration because um, it isn't um, necessarily a logical thing to do to create a great scholarly sketch or a brilliant piece of music. It, it does require something that is perhaps more intuitive, and intuition is, is a fascinating topic in itself. And indeed, some investors, and I have to say this, Paul, uh, you always struck me as being a very good intuitive investor when I saw you, and you'd find plenty of reasons to do it afterwards. But sometimes you know there are people in the markets who've got a good nose for money, uh, and we shouldn't ignore those. But what we should do is try and understand if they have a process, what is it? And can they exemplify it? Can they explain it? Can they justify it? Now, I wouldn't, I wouldn't invest with an asset manager who just had a good nose if he or she couldn't then give some methodology behind their process. I think it's really important. Yeah. And, and you see this time and time again that, <clears throat> oh, you know, oh, so-and-so, he's a great investor. Well, how does he do it? Well, I don't know. He's just got a good nose. I, I, don't, I think that's more the, myth, the, the yeah. urban myth. I don't think that really – but you do get people with good instincts. And I think the yeah. best instinct that people have is just being aware that something is oversold or undervalued. In other words, yeah. something has gone down in price a huge amount. It could be a stock or a market, and there's an awareness that people have. There's awareness in some investors that the market has got too pessimistic. Yeah, and that- oh, let me let me ask you, you know, a personal question on that. So, thank you very much for, for that that comment. But I, I I think I over time I became aware of some pretty big blind spots I had as well. So I was quite good at I, th- I think uh, from a personal perspective, I I often felt that it was kind of the top of a mania and I could, I could often get the sense that that was about to turn. So I often 
you know, had that sense. And sometimes it worked out quite well. But the, uh, the other kind of extreme, the, when markets hit a extreme of pessimism or, you know, when it's time to buy back in, I, w- I found I wasn't very good at finding those. I tended to, to you know, to be good at one end of the bubble, uh, one end of the cycle, but not at the other. And, and maybe that was something in, in my you know, mental makeup or wiring. So I had to become more aware of that and kind of protect myself a bit because I was repeating that mistake. So, you know, is that, is that something that you come across or you have come across frequently, people have been good at one thing, but not at, a, at another? Very, very much so. At the moment, I'm working very closely with a company called Behaviour Lab. And what Behaviour Lab do is identify those sorts of biases that asset managers, and you need about three or five years worth of data minimum to analyze it. But what they will do is they'll look at patterns of trading or patterns of investment. Uh, this isn't relating, I emphasize again, to short-term traders. This is people who are investing for long-term, but you're still looking at their trading patterns. And one of the most common things you find is that is this idea that people are late to sell. Um, they, they're they pretty good at, again, this may be the opposite to you, but they're, they're, they're quite good at getting in, finding stocks that are cheap or, or good valuations. They'll ride it up for, say, 18 months and, and going well. And then, of course, the market catches on, so it'll have another spurt upwards. And that is the point at which the analysis shows they should be thinking about selling some or reducing holdings, because what happens is then people get too bullish in the short term, and then there could be a set of results that disappoints, and down the share price comes again. And again, you're looking for long-term themes, but within those long-term themes, you're getting short-term cycles. And the best asset managers try try and... play at least part of that cycle well now the thing you mentioned was interesting because because um yes spotting things are too high or spotting things are too low it's hard to do both and as the old cliche goes it doesn't ring a bell at the top or the bottom um if you recall i think when we last worked together was it 94 we had yeah. the most extraordinary bear market in bonds i remember i left you some portfolios with bonds in them and you, you got the, you got you got the hit for uh for holding them but there we are that's a long time ago i'm well, sure they've forgiven you i'd like to think i turned it around but anyway um <laughs> every day you come in, do you remember it was, like, it was it was how i remember people describing the 73 74 bear market in equities yeah it was almost like death by a thousand cuts it wasn't great huge movements it was every day you come in it was you know prices were lower yields were higher and you kept thinking this must be near the bottom now. Like, not you. We we kept thinking we must be in the bottom now. And of course, prices kept falling. Yields kept. Yeah, I remember up. that. Yeah, very well. Yeah, it was incredible. A lot further than um, <coughs> that I remember than, than, than we wanted. But that my markets. That's the nature of, of of markets in terms of the emotional roller coaster. And it is an emotional. It can be an emotional roller coaster. But it's only an emotional roller coaster because human behaviour. Well, what's that old cliche? Greed and fear. It, it, they, you can't yeah. ignore the fact that it's that. And it wasn't Mark Twain who said it, but everyone quotes him as saying it. You know, history doesn't repeat itself, but it does rhyme. Yeah. And and the rhythms in markets, or the patterns, if you like, uh, often resemble the fact the rhythms of human behaviour and humans' emotions. So yeah, I remember I remember our late colleague Jim Cox saying, you know, exactly that that it's just the markets are just greed and fear and really nothing else, and uh, and it, it kind of stuck with me. Yeah, absolutely, and. and you know, I think the question we all make mistakes, and anybody who says they make mistakes is a liar. But the question is, can you learn from them for the next time? Yeah. And, and unfortunately, the nature of economic cycles and market cycles is such that there's a, a generational difference between the last one and this one. Yeah. So often, the people who may have learned something have, have long retired, or um, 
Yeah. Uh, maybe, but what you said about uh, the different sort of behavioural um, features or people having different traits uh, has, uh, you know, obviously a significant implications for the way people work in organisations. You should organisations should, should seek diversity amongst the people they employ and uh, are not and, and try and avoid groupthink as far as possible. Which I guess these days is becoming more and more difficult because of the, the self reinforcing nature of the media we we follow and and uh, and how we collect our information. Yes, and, and 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 you mentioned diversity there. I'll just I'll just try and fine tune that even more. I, I, I'm a great believer in the concept of diversity, the idea of different genders, races, religions, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, around any decision making table or in any organisation. I think that's really important. But let me tell you why I think it's it's not just the right thing to do because it's fair and just. That alone is good reason. The reason why I think it's the right thing to do is because it works. And why does it work? It's because the diversity means you have cognitive diversity yeah. and people with different backgrounds offer different cognitive perspectives on the same challenges mm. and as long as you can somehow uh, um, um, amass the best ideas from a diverse a cognitively diverse group you end up with some pretty good ideas um, i think it was it was alan Kay that said a change in a, a change in perspective is worth 80 iq points now yeah. think about it what does cognitive diversity mean it means you're finding someone who's not you, who has a different perspective to you. So your collective IQ hopefully goes up. You become more intelligent in your combined knowledge. You, you bring something different to the, to the party, if you like. So well, Presumably we can all apply this in our own lives. You know, we, should, you know, we can brush our teeth with our left hand rather than our right hand or take a different walk uh, down a different route than the one we usually take. It's important for all, us, for all of us to be aware of this. Absolutely. And that's that, what you're doing by that, by the way, is you're opening up. If you, if you brush your teeth with, your, with a different hand, uh, what you're doing is you're opening up new neural networks in your brain, ones that might have gone to sleep years ago, but suddenly you've awakened them. And, and the theory says if you do more things like that, if you yeah. – and, again, this is one of the reasons, by the way, Paul, that people say those who read, who just read – and it can be fiction or nonfiction, but people who read tend to do better in life. Not because, I don't mean literate versus illiterate people. That's a different discussion. But people who actively read are opening up a lot more neural networks – which allows them to think better. I mean, Buffett and Munger go on about this all the time, about how much they, they, they read. And it may be nothing to do with business or investment, but, but they would argue, and again, there may be some survivor biaship here, but I've met enough people in the markets who have been good investors who, den, who tend to read a lot of stuff. And, and yeah. again, it takes time and energy, but it's worth it, if you, particularly if you enjoy reading. And, um, yeah. and, 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 you know, I think the issue with a lot of, business these days is it's the tyranny of the, what I call the tyranny of the spreadsheet. The idea being that uh, in any business, we end up reporting numbers to somebody who ends up with a number in, in one cell of a spreadsheet. And guess what? He or she then has to push it one level up to their boss. Yeah. You have to amalgamate it with all the other spreadsheets that he or she have got for another single cell. And up it goes yeah. to the top. So everyone is thinking about economic efficiency the whole time. And I'm not saying for one minute that's not important and shareholders, value and everything else. What I'm saying is the danger is you kill the creativity by doing that. In, in other words, if we become obsessed with a spreadsheet, we forget about hidden value. My, uh, my friend Rory Sutherland talks about uh, a metaphor for this, is, is the purpose of a, of a doorman uh, outside of, say, a, a New York apartment. Now, it's very easy to, um, to say – oh, well, we can replace the doorman and save ourselves X thousand dollars a year. We'll have a keypad in. It's just a secure boom. And, and someone somewhere can put that in a spreadsheet and send to their 
property boss who goes, great, we'll save ourselves thousands of, thousands of dollars a year, get a keypad. But all the unwritten benefits of a, door, a doorman, right? So, you know, just welcoming someone. Hello, hello, madam. Hello, sir. How are you? Good day shopping. Can I help you with the bags? Can I open the door for you, sir? The extra security, both real and perceived, of having a door person outside an apartment. Now, these aren't in that spreadsheet, but yeah. they're very, very important things. And I, I guess I know we're coming to the end of our time now in terms of our talk now, but I think that one of the things I would like the city to get better at is to be to be perceived as having more of a focus, as it does in many cases, on relationships rather than just transactions. I mean, the, the, you, your theme of your podcast is money, and, and, and obviously people often think about money as just being a transactional thing. But if you think about it in terms of investment, it becomes a relationship thing. So long-term pensions are about long-term relationships between an employer and employees. The best business relationships I've ever seen in my life were about long-term relationships. Not They're not transactional. Yeah. They may have, and again, it, it may sound a bit, um, well, I don't know, a bit cheesy in the context of the hard-hitting financial capitalist world. But I think relationships matter why, because human beings, if they like you and they trust you, you can have an enduring business relationship involving as many money flows as you like. Once that trust is broken down and becomes a transaction only, that's when the problems occur. Uh, and you know, if I was to 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 think about an image improvement that I would like to see in the city, it would be one to be a bit more creative in terms of allowing people to think outside the tyranny of the spreadsheet. And two is for people to be more aware that a lot of what we try to do or what we should aspire to do is to is to focus on the importance of long-term relationships because long-term relationships equals trust. Yeah, thank you, Paul. It's been a very interesting discussion. Uh, it's been and it's been a, a great pleasure to have you on the podcast. So thank you for taking the time to to speak to me and to our listeners. Thank you very much indeed, Paul. One final thought for you: being rich is having money. Being wealthy is having time. Thank you for listening to this episode of the New Money Review podcast, The Future of Money in 30 Minutes. If you enjoyed this podcast, please like it, share it, or tell a friend about it. At our website, newmoneyreview.com, you can also sign up to our newsletter, which will keep you informed of all New Money Review articles and podcasts. If you'd like to support us, you can do so via Patreon or using cryptocurrency. Details of how to do this are on the homepage of our website in the right column. Finally, please join us soon for our next episode.